For the last five years, I've been lucky enough to have reported on one of the most remarkable events in Irish sport, the annual FBD Millcross. Each year, like one big extended family, virtually the same people turn up to guide the race around the country. Last year, it all started on Saturday the 17th of May outside Barry's Hotel in Dublin. For the next nine days, over 300 people, less than half of them actually on bikes, would work their way in a clockwise direction around Ireland. We're covering some 836 miles. It's one of the longest amateur stage races in the world and the man with the job of making it all work is Dermot Dignam. He's been involved in organising the race since 1973 and starts planning the next one almost immediately. The last one is finished. Probably one of our main headaches is to accommodate over 300 people in, in some of the, uh, the, the towns and villages that we visit throughout the country. It, it's, a, it's, it's a major operation and uh, the way things have gone over the past few years with the increase in tourism, we, we find it increasingly difficult to accommodate uh, such a large number uh, of, of race people in, in, in a town such as Mill Street or, or, or Bunkrana. No, that's probably our, our, one of our biggest problems. Then closer to the race, it's a question of, of deciding who we're going to invite and trying to get the balance right to make sure that the race is competitive without any uh, particular team monopolising the, uh, the, 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 the race. And of course, the race has to be marshalled all the way along. It has indeed. Uh, thankfully, we're, we get tremendous cooperation from the Gardaí. And this year, uh, coming down through the north, the RUC, we have had, had a number of meetings with them. And uh, you know, without the, the assistance of both these forces, it wouldn't be possible to put the race on. But we have our own marshals then. We would have about uh, 10 motorcycle marshals and uh, five or six lead cars who are ahead of the race the whole time, uh, stewarding junctions and making sure that the race stays on course. Uh, and um, uh, of course then, in each stage and town, the local committee, be it the Chamber of Commerce or the Town Development Committee or the, or the Cycling Club, whoever is actually organising the stage finish, uh, it's their responsibility to steward uh, the last three or four miles into the town. What about choosing the route itself? Um, yeah, it's choosing the route, it's... It's one of those things that I think by, by now it's probably done more by instinct than anything else. Like, you know, and uh, we appear to get the, the mix right year in and year out because uh, every year the, the, the top five or six riders are only seconds from, from each other like, you know, in, in time at the end of the race. Uh, yeah, we try and get a nice mix of, of mountains and flat stages and some years and this year we don't have a time trial but other years we do. So it's a question of, of getting a mix right and we feel that we need a time trial or an extra mountain or an extra mountain stage in the race. When will we we'll do that? Right? So, How long have you been involved with the Ross? Well, I've been involved with the Ross since, uh, believe it or not, since 1959 when I rode the Ross uh, initially. So, as a cyclist, I've been involved from 1959 to 1972. And since 1973 then to the present day, I've been involved in the, in the organisation end of things. It's obviously a race very close uh, to your heart. It is, yeah, it's very close, but it's more than just a race. It's, 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 a, it's a tremendous, it's a national event, and we just don't have uh, kind of cycling people involved. We, we have people from all walks of life involved uh, in stage end towns and in the organising of, of, of the race. Um, you get a tremendous uh, sense of achievement once the race is on the road and everything is working out and to see maybe 140, 150 young cyclists who have trained so hard and uh, committed themselves and dedicated so much to the bicycle that they get uh, fit enough to achieve a level of fitness that can sort of stand to them over nine days of very, very tough racing. This nine-day race, 150 riders from all five continents of the world for the 44th edition of the Ross, the FPD Millcross. 
Chief Commissar Jack Watson has blown a whistle and we are on our way. The flag has been lifted by the sponsors and video The voice you heard there was that of Master of Ceremonies Ray Kennedy, who's up on the presentation platform at the end of each stage. Well, Ray happens to be the lead singer with the ballad group Platform, but just how did he manage to land this gig? In a quaint sort of a roundabout way, Roy. A man called Ollie McKenna asked me what I'd do it one year. And I had, I had been in the Ross, obviously, in, in ancient times. And I saw this as a great way to get back into it. Little did I realise that the year I picked to do it, there was no sponsorship. So I was equipped with a, a two-watt PA that nobody could hear. I was thrown in at the deep end with no PA person, and I'm stuck with it ever since. And I'm sort of like the fly drawn to the light. I can't resist it. Now you've coined the phrase as you're trying to work up the crowd. Let's hear it for the men of the Ross. <laughs> Where did that come from? That happened that awful year, the first year. I think it was 1981. I'm 15 years at it now, as far as I remember. And that was the first year. And it was in a wet, windy evening in Kilrush. Nobody uh, taking any interest in the race. And I was looking down along the line. And I just out and over said, let's rise to the men of the Ross. Let's hear from the men of the Ross. And it worked. And I've been stuck with it ever since. And now it's become part of the sort of parlance. But that's where it came from, a wet and windy day in Kilrush in 1981, with nobody on the platform except myself. <laughs> you must have had some funny stories to tell from the platform uh, over the years. Yeah, yeah. There's one that springs to mind. You know the way a race starts in a small town and it's neutralised to outside the town. We were parading behind the band and old Johnny, I forget his second name, was the mayor of the town, the self-styled mayor. And so we were parading out and he was to drop the flag. But halfway out, Johnny got fed up. He said, ah, we'll do it here. So he dropped the flag and the race starts, but they forgot to tell the band. So now there's guys with euphoniums and double bass jumping in and cyclists come flying through them. And there's another case in Limerick. We were about to start and the Lord Mayor again was in full flow. And a little woman comes up, tugs his coat and says to him, are we getting the free coal this year? <laughs> so to hell with the Ross, let's do the basics. So that sort of thing. But I remember going back to, to even the old days. Before, when, when I rode it in the 60s. Now, I had a very ignominious career in the Ross, I have to say. The highest I ever got in classification was 13th. And I, I, never, I never became a man of the Ross myself. But a little bit before my time, we were, uh, the race was going into, going into the north. And the then Ross director, the legendary Joe Crystal, wouldn't take down the tricolour. He said, this is Ireland we're going through. So we arrive in a town called Cookstown, tricolours flying, and the RUC stop us. And the, they say, you can't come through with the flags. We refuse to take them down. And the people of the town now line the road and stop the race. And for about five seconds of silence, and then all hell breaks loose, and they attack the riders. 
So this guy's climbing up poles and onto railings trying to beat them away. The guy who told me this was a, a friend of mine called Mickey Palmer. And the real irony is that he was a Protestant, <laughs> being beaten to death for riding the Roth. But anyway, they stopped it and neutralised it through the north. And it eventually finished in, in Ballina and Mayo at sort of half nine that night having now travelled almost 180 miles. And they finished under lamp lights and under the car lights. And a man called Con Carr, who's still alive and well, won that epic stage. Now, you mentioned Joe Crystal there. I mean, he was mm. very much involved in the early, the, the early Rosses. Mm. He was the main man, and he, he ran it in a very peculiar way. Nowadays, you know, it's, it's sponsored. Uh, but he, he ran it from town to town, literally. Uh, I was born in Westport and Mayo, and he would ring somebody in Westport and Mayo and say, it's a while since you had a stage end. We have granted you a stage end this year. Now, we was him. So that then was up to the local guy to get sponsorship to pay for anything that might happen. The stage end, the prizes, etc., etc. And teams paid for their own way. But that's the way he did it, literally from town to town. And then he would ask sort of that you would, you would sort of police the roads out of the town or into the town. That's all. And each town did that. But he had such an aura about him that you took that as being a great honour. And the whole town said, Joe Crystal has rung in the local post office. And that went to the local sort of school teacher. And it went from there. But he had this aura about him that you did it. And you didn't realise you were being conned, but you did it. <laughs> but he, he had another great thing. He would ride in an open car, an open top car, so that if it was raining, it rained on him as well. So he had all this aura about him, <laughs> which I loved. <laughs> Well, that looks like a small group forming off the front. Could you give us a time check and an ID on the group? Over. Just stand by, Jack. Uh, yeah, there's four riders there, Jack. Uh, rider 84, number 22, number 101, and number 151. They have an advantage of 10 seconds on the front of the bunch. That's Roger. That fell. Uh, keep an eye out there, then, when we need to get the usual service moved in. Out you. Come on to Motocom. Mickey, what's the situation at the back there, Mickey? Over. Roger, Jack. The points jersey has received service from the neutral service vehicle, rear wheel puncture. He's in the cavalcade safely and he's making his way forward. There's a group of five riders have just lost contact with the rear of the cavalcade. However, the broom uh, is covering them. Over. That's gone. Keep your eye on the points jersey there and make sure you get safe passage through the cavalcade. Right, you come on to Motocon, Phil. What's the situation at the front there, Phil? Over. The gap is widening now, Jack. Uh, it's 29 seconds. Uh, stand by, neutral service to drop in behind the brake. Jack Watson, uh, you're a chief commissar, COM1, as we heard there. Maybe you could explain just what was going on. Well, that's a situation where we have a group forming off the front. Um, we need to get information back fairly rapidly to the team cars so that monitors can formulate their plans and how the, the race will progress. As soon as we get the gap up to one minute, then we let the, the team monitors in and they'll direct the riders of what way they should ride and advise them what's happening to the other members within the team. So it's very important that we can get that information and get it back quickly to the monitors. The race radio is an integral part of the race, isn't it? Yes, uh, Roy, we have something like 60 radios on the race. 
uh, right from the lead car, the race director, the commissars, the marshals, uh, every team has a, a radio back to the broom, the ambulance, the doctors and even the Garda and when we're in the North RUC all have a radio supplied so we can keep in touch and on top of the normal channel then there's a sort of a confidential channel between myself and senior race officials and the doctor sort of have an incident on the road say for instance there was a tanker overturned and we needed to divert the race and divert it promptly without worrying the other race personnel we can go on this confidential channel or if there was a serious accident and the doctor wanted to communicate some information to me about somebody seriously injured we can use the confidential channel how happy are you, are you about the way the race has gone through the country this year? It's been excellent. The marshalling is first class. Uh, most of our marshals are all guards, so they're well aware of the need to get the race through safely. We work on a leapfrog system with the marshals. One stops off at a, a corner, a junction, or a hazard on the road. The other's leapfrog him. It's just a, a continual movement up the road. But that is one of the comments we get about this race, how safe people go to make it for the riders. <laughs> And thankfully most riders do make it to the stage end and then all the results have to be worked out. Up on the platform there's an air of controlled chaos. 44, 55, 28, 153, 41, 60, one, one something, one ten. McGuire, Adam Marsh Rider, 10, time 3, 4, 2, 0, New time, number 18 and number 86, 3, 4, 2, 2, 3. And you've got the um, points for me. Not yet, we're waiting for the info. We've only got seven placings so far. What do you need? 15. Yeah. This last one is a fairly serious one of a raider taking pace. Uh, this gives the public a bad opinion of bike racing when they see a raider behind a vehicle, plus the fact it's a very, very unsafe practice. Uh, how long did you witness this for, Mickey? Uh, what happened there, I was putting my waterproofs on, I came back up to the back of the cavalcade and saw the rider tight in behind his team car, taking pace. Now, I witnessed it for approximately 400 metres before I was able to get up and speak to the car driver and push him forward. So it was 400 metres, the offence, Jack. That one would be fairly serious. That is blatant cheating, so, uh, and it is covered within the rules, so it'll be a two-minute penalty and we'll apply it to a stage result. And uh, hopefully, as I say, it will not be any further reoccurrences of it. There will be a disqualification. Okay, still on 3.36.52? Yeah, still that okay. stage. Okay, go ahead. Number two, number three, number four, 12, 17. Seamus, the next rider who finished in the bunch, he's a two-minute penalty. Seamus Shorthall, you're working away here at the computer, getting the results together. Maybe you'd explain to us just how it works. Well, the most important thing is the human element on the line where judges with a very sharp eye and uh, very good concentration, watch what's going on at the finish and then they take the numbers and they assign times. To back them up, then there's a photo finish, very similar to the types of photo finish you'll see used at horse races. And then when they have all of that information, an awful lot of that, they have to tease out of that what's important to decide who to give the jersey to on the line. So they give that information to me, I put it into the computer, it adds it on to all the information we've recorded for the previous days and we'll print out the essential headlines. Then when we get back to the HQ, uh, they go through all of the information again, recheck it and then go all the way down. They have to give a, a placing and a time to the first rider and to the 152nd rider. 
and when they're satisfied with that and when all the contradictions that can arise have been solved and all the observations about maybe a rider took a, a lap out without being allowed to then it, they come to me and uh, we put in a, the times and all the numbers and the computer then adds all of that up onto the previous days and it takes account of things like points for sprinting and for getting up mountains first. It is a very complicated calculation for the teams. Uh, there's a special competition for teams, which, is, which uh, takes the best three riders every day. And then it takes all of that information and tries to lay it out in a, in a way that will be very easy to read. And we print that out and we put it on the copiers. And then there's 300 copies of that made, about five pages of information, so that everybody in the race, whether a rider, an official, a mechanic, can see exactly the current statement of affairs of uh, what the state of the race is. And from that, then, the riders will decide their tactics for the next day. And then there's a little bit of administration as well that goes on. And then this year I, I'm trying a new gimmick. I, I'm taking pictures with a video camera and scanning them into the computer and including them among the results to try and put some faces to all the numbers and uh, statistics that go on the results sheet. And that's proving quite popular. How difficult a job was it to design a programme that would take, uh, take all this on board? I... It was quite difficult. I think that was a turning point when I stopped racing. My training was seriously affected when I started finding myself spending long weekends and even holidays sometimes writing the original programme and checking it and rechecking it because you can't just show up at a race and have the thing uh, produce uh, wrong information because your credibility just goes completely and nobody will invite you back. And I, I took it very seriously. So I'd say... I probably part-time put in a, about six months solid uh, writing it and then I've added on bits and pieces later on as I learned from people and as the technology has come on and given me more opportunities to, uh, to, to make it easier to use and to make, and to make, to make it uh, more pleasing in its presentation. <laughs> And so 300 three-page documents are produced every evening. We're back on the road again now and driving ahead of the race each day is Garda Colum Cullen of the Traffic Department in Dublin Castle. Colum is Chief Marshal on the Ross and it's his job to liaise with all the local Gardaí in the various towns en route. I sat in with Colm as the Ross approached Sligo Town. Uh, Tango 212 to Victor Alpha now, we're just uh, entering Ballastair. Um, could you ask your members on the points uh, to stay there until they see two Irish Red Cross ambulances and a red high ace van? Now, the high ace van will have a broom tied to the wing mirror, and that is the last vehicle in the race. Over. Yeah, they're the last vehicles in the race. If you would ask your members to stay on their points until they see those vehicles go by, over. Thanks. Tango 212 to Victor Alpha now, just passing the Sligo Park, over. Uh, Chief Marshal to come on. The gap seems to be 115 to Small Group Riders North of the 120 to Budge. 
You just answered what I was about to ask you, uh, what the differences were. Tango 212 to Victor Alpha. Go ahead, 212. Slight change now. Um, the gap has gone up to 1 minute 20. And there is a small group of riders in the middle between the leaders and the main field. Over. Two one two to Victor Alpha. Just coming out after turning off the main road into town onto the bypass. Over. Colin, we're going through Sligo now, and it seems to be fairly smooth. Is it? Is it always like this? Uh, we had a bit of a panic the other day um, in Charleville. Charleville, through some cock up, they um, they never got the file and they didn't realise the race was coming into their town. So literally, we had to get bodies out in 20 minutes. So we were lucky, we had the lads, the traffic lads from Cork, who know the story well. And as luck would have it, the two motorcyclists from Limerick who were taken up on the divisional boundary um, arrived in Charleville to meet us there. So that meant I, I sent the two Cork lads ahead to help out and then the two Limerick lads arrived and by the time we got into town uh, I was a bit afraid of traffic because you know country towns for parking but uh, they did a great job we, we sailed straight through Charleville without a problem you know but it was a little bit hairy for a few minutes but we got there you know but generally the bigger towns that are used to the cycle races going through they know the drill I mean, Nina was something else. They had traffic. The, uh, southbound traffic was diverted at Tumivara. And northbound, you know, D uh, Dublin bound traffic or, were uh, diverted down through the silver mines. So absolutely nobody got into Nina on the day, and it was brilliant. Is there much, uh, you know, local reaction to that sort of disruption? Ah, you know, you know yourself, there's always a fuel pinch, but generally speaking, no, because. On the, on the open road, you're only talking a matter of being stopped maybe three or four minutes, five minutes at the most. So there's no problem that way. Uh, a town can be different, but generally speaking, the local guards would have a diversionary system in, in, in place so that they wouldn't be holding up many people. But, uh, you know, you'd always have somebody to whinge. It wouldn't be Ireland if they didn't. Now, Castle Bar were very good yesterday. They were going to keep the roads open for the stragglers, but sort of they were out of bala. I mean, you couldn't block up a town this size of Castle Bar just for a few strugglers, you know. Just hang on now. Sligo are calling me. Tango 212 to Victor Alpha. Um, gone through the town and everything is great, thank you. Everything went very smoothly. You can tell Theresa that as well, over. Roger, 212. 212 to Alpha, you might do us a favour and ring Ballyshannon and tell them we're on route, over. Roger, we're doing no problem. Thanks a million for everything. Now you've been involved with the Ross for quite some time yourself. Uh, my first Ross was in 1987. It's a great outfit. It's like a family on going on my second family on holidays. It's going around the country. Um, it's the same people every year. 
if you were to try and write a report on the Ross, it is the most haphazard, disorganised outfit prior to the Ross. And then everybody arrives on the first day, everybody slots into their place, and away we go. And that's it. I came on Saturday, I got my race radio, I had the other radios fitted already. I wasn't at any meetings. I was on the phone a couple of times to Dermot Dignam, the race director. Do, sorted this out, sorted that out, parking, etc. And that was it. But I didn't meet him until Saturday morning. You know, it's a weird outfit, but it works. <laughs> now, in your earlier days, you were involved on a motorbike. Now you're in a car. Mm, well, circumstances change. Uh, in 1992, I had a bad accident off a bike on duty, and uh, as a result, I'm in a wheelchair. So now I'm doing this job with a wheelchair in the back of the car. So my days on motorbikes are finished, but I can still do something useful, so I'm here. It's hard to get rid of me. Well, it seems to me that it's hard to get rid of any of them. Chief Marshal Colin Cullen there. Well, back in the 60s, there was one man whose name stood out above all others in Irish amateur cycling, and that was Shea O'Hanlon. O'Hanlon won the Ross four times in all, and yes, he's still involved. This year, he was driving one of the press cars, and before the stage start in Buncrana, we talked about the Ross in its early days. It started off back in 1953 as a two-day, and then it was the following year it was run as an eight-day, and it continued as an eight-day into the 1960s when it went up to a 10-day. But it did play a big part because it did something that happens in very few countries where you might have major stage races there and top international races with full international fields and so on, but the actual riders in the country can't get a chance to ride a stage race like this. And we're very lucky here that this gives everyone an opportunity to get a, a great experience, but yet it's a high-class race. It's not just a sort of fish-and-chip affair. And it seems to have sort of transcended the divides that have existed historically in Irish cycling too. Ah, well, the divides that existed in Irish cycling disappeared very quickly. I thought it was very funny. Um, the, the, we had all started racing together, and we'd been racing together for two years, and I was at a track meeting in Dublin, and I was going around warming up between races, and I was riding around with Philip Cassidy, and I think it was Raphael Kimmich, but it may have been Paul, and as we were riding around, they turned to me and they said, it's true that a few years ago you used to have separate championships and that, why is it that when the row was on that you just didn't get together and just have one championship anyway? So this was two years after we started racing and they had no comprehension of the sort of bitterness and wrangling that had gone on beforehand. So now we're what? We're 17 years gone beyond it and like there's only a few old men remember what went on there. It doesn't exist. Has this race changed much since the days it used to cycle yeah, it's changed in a whole lot of ways and it's stayed the same. It's changed in the equipment and the personnel that run the race. When I rode it first, it was run by maybe about four people who sat down with uh, cards every night, a card for every rider, and manually added up the times and then checked the times for mistakes. And on the road, it was controlled by about two or three cars belonging to the organisation. The rider's equipment have ch has changed, the bikes have developed, 
a certain amount since then. Not uh, not a huge amount, but a certain amount for road racing bicycles. Um, now there are maybe about 60 officials travelling with the organisation in the race. The times are done by computer, uh, slightly faster than they used to be done manually. Uh, there's a lot more information available. But inside it all, there's still just a man on a bicycle. And it all centres around the man on the bicycle. And the man on the bicycle hasn't changed at all. They still do the same thing. They have to think the same thoughts, sort of react to one another differently. And in that way, it hasn't changed at all at all. I believe when you were the man on, on the bicycle in the 60s, you used to grab hold of that yellow jersey and just keep it for the whole race. Well, yes, um, in 1965, on the first stage, I think it finished in Monaghan, and I was in the breakaway, and I was thinking that it would be unfortunate, you know, that there'd be a lot of defending to do if I got the jersey that day. But when I saw the finishing line, I couldn't resist. You know, the the fever took over and I just wanted the stage win, which gave me the jersey. And you get hungry then and you just hold on to what you can get. I can never understand the thing this year where I had heard people saying early in the week uh, that they didn't want the jersey because it would put too much pressure on them. Uh, if you have the jersey, you're under much less pressure than, than you are when you're trying to get it off somebody else. What about the standard of the riding? How, you know, are, the, are the riders stronger now? Um, I don't know. I wouldn't like to comment on that as to whether the riders are stronger. They probably are. They probably go faster. Uh, but I don't think that makes any difference because if they are, the rising tide has lifted all boats and the battle is still the same between them. Because the battle, uh, the battle in a race at 20 miles an hour, where all the people are of the same standard, is the same as the battle in a race at 25 miles an hour, where all the people are of the same standard. The ever-present Shay O'Hanlon. Well, another man who keeps coming back is Gabriel Howard. Incredibly, the Meath man was on his 34th Ross. Having ridden it on 21 occasions, he now drives one of three cars carrying out neutral service. We start in Dublin on Saturday and we collect all wheels. The neutral service men collect wheels of each team competing in the race. And the neutral service cars carry approximately 30 wheels, 15 fronts, 15 bikes, as well as spare bikes, two spare bikes on each. And as far as anybody punctures or breaks a bike or anything, we try and get them back on the road, change wheels, change bikes as quickly as possible, uh, get them back on the road. Uh, for instance, on the Dengesh Pass, the mountain jersey, the guy carrying the mountain jersey broke his chain and uh, he changed bikes. We replaced the chain on his bike and uh, caught on him again in the car and he changed bikes again back onto his own bike and he carried on to finish second in the stage that day. Now how long does it take you to change your wheel? Uh, approximately about 15 seconds to change a front wheel and I would say approximately 25 seconds to change a back wheel. Although the cyclist will lose a little bit more because he has to stop and get back on his bike. But uh, some of the wheel changes can be very fast and some of them can be a little bit slow. You can get some type of frames from American, these, these Japan frames, but, uh, teams from foreign countries where with different size frames and you have to uh, fiddle around a little bit to get the wheel in, but usually uh, fairly quick. 
No, about 15 seconds, 25 seconds. Now you have to stick very close to the cyclists when you're driving around, don't you? Oh, we have, yes. We, have, we stick very, very close to them. Uh, for instance, coming through Keely Beggs in this particular Ross, the two leaders were doing 45 miles an hour down the hill into Keely Beggs and I was right on their tail. And uh, just leave enough room in case there's an accident that, God forbid, that any of them would fall and that you'd drive across them or anything, but you have to leave that little bit of space. But we do stay very close to them, yes, because it's all about speed of, in case anything had happened to them, to get them back there into the position as quick as possible. You must tell a few stories to tell about the Ross. Yeah, the Ross is a place where you'd always get stories. You wouldn't go through, I uh, suppose, 34 Ross without some funny stories. Uh, one funny story, really, that happened in, uh, way back now, I just forget the particular year, but I was riding on the Mead team, and uh, a fella called Seamus Gilligan, better known in our area, throughout County Mead, was the Bull Gilligan, was the team manager. And the stage was into Clonmel. And I'm almost certain... I hope the contradiction, but almost certain that Bobby Power won the same stage. It was a very wet Sunday. And we said, well, where does Miss... It was it happened to be a Mrs. Power we were staying with, not Bobby Power's mother. But uh, we said, well, where does Mrs. Power live? And he said, oh, just round the corner up here. So we asked the people and they said, yeah, Mrs. Power lives up there. So we went up to the house we were directed to and uh, we knocked at the door and a kid opened the door, I suppose it was a kid of about seven or eight. And we said, where's your mammy? And he said, he's gone to meet the cyclists. So we said, and we're at the right house. So we went in. Nobody in the house, only two children. Uh, we looked into the rooms. We decided which room we'd stay in. But the beds weren't freshly made up, with no disrespect to anybody. And we said, maybe we're not staying here, but, uh, well, it'll do for the time being anyway. So we went in, had a shower, bath and all, no clothes, got into the beds, <laughs> got into the beds uh, that were available. And there was still no sign of the woman of the house or no sign of the boy coming with her clothes. But about 20 minutes or a half an hour later, maybe an hour later, the lady and the husband, the man of the house appeared. And here she didn't, couldn't believe that it was the cycling team in our beds. And we weren't booked in there, and we weren't supposed to be booked in there. So a little bit of an argument started between husband and wife. And the wife said, oh, you have to stay, you have to stay. But she actually made tea and sandwiches for us. And about three hours later, the famous bull came along and found us and brought us to our proper digs, which was five miles away. And we, we could not, we had not the only towels around us for all that length of time. We had only wet clothes. And when we got in, our clothes was all wet. So when we had a shower, we only tied a towel around us. And you could imagine that side trying to drink tea. It was a very, very funny incident. You still knock a bit of crack out of it, don't you? Oh, yes, I enjoy it. I enjoy the Ross, yeah. I think there's a great buzz about the Ross. I really uh, enjoy the Ross. Uh, I enjoy working on the Ross, and I enjoy the way Dermot Dignam has brought the Ross into such high standard with teams coming from all over the world. And you make great friends in the Ross. You make friends that you possibly never forget. Like, I have great contacts all over the world and all over... Uh, continent and England especially from just from the Ross people that you might never meet anywhere only on the like of this race it's a, it's a fabulous race like for the like of that you know and we do enjoy it yes there's some of the night stages now as it's commonly known as now I, I personally don't drink uh, but I still stay up all night with the boys singing and having the crack although I'm not a great singer but I still have to crack with the lads and tell the yarns and enjoy this enjoy it and that's I think if you don't enjoy it you should stay at home like Gabriel Howard stressing just how important those night stages are. Well, it was on the night stage in Donegal Town that I caught up with two more Mead men with vast Ross experience, Noel Clark and Jerry Campbell. They go ahead of the race each day and put the arrows in place to show everybody which route to take. But as Noel told me, things don't always go according to plan. 
five years ago was a real big mishap. We went wrong in Kilcar. Somehow or other, we were looking for a right-hand uh, Y on the road, and it never appeared. When it did appear, it was about three miles too late, so we redirected. Came into Donegal Town at the stage end, and Jackie Watson came in and said, uh, my partner, Jerry Campbell, he said, uh, hey, Jerry, what happened in Kilcar? And uh, from that on, was Jerry wrote a song about it, the ballad of Kilcar, which is now famous in the Ross. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, what happened? Well, basically, we were supposed to turn right at a, at a wide junction coming into Kilcar, which we did. But uh, unknown to us, we had missed a previous wide junction. And uh, normally, if we would go wrong during the race, um, the, the following instructions wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't tally. But in this case, they did because we took a, a, a right at a wide junction into uh, Kilcar. And the next instruction was to turn left at Four Crossroads, which we also did. And next was left at Bridge, which we also did. But it, it, it just didn't coincide with what the race director meant it to be. With the, the result that uh, the leading group that day took the, the route that we had marked. And uh, the race director, Dermot, had, uh, knew that we, we weren't on the road we were supposed to be on. And uh, he got panicky and he went through the race radio and he said, look, the race is wrong. So they sent the second group the way that the race was supposed to go in the first place. And with the consequences that in Kilcar, one bunch came in one, one road and the second bunch came in another road. And they basically met each other in the middle of the street and uh, they, they had some fun. We consequently wrote a song about it because uh, we, we got, this night five years ago, we were here and uh, we got an awful lot of slagging it, but we also got a lot of sympathy and uh, the race sponsors in particular, uh, they were delighted actually because uh, it meant there was going to be more publicity for this race sponsors the next morning in the, in, in the paper, in the media. And uh, Philip Fitzsimons, especially from FBD Boss, a few drinks, and we wrote a song about it. Hey, this is culture. This is the fifth anniversary of Kilcar. of Kilcar. So today was Kilcar, take two. Right? <laughs> I'll tell to you my story and I'll sing it in a song. Of the day up in Donegal, we brought the Ross all round. We turned down a wrong road, now the truth I'll tell to you. All we could do about it was to have a pint or two. We'll have a pint or two, me boys, and maybe three or four. At the end of the evening, we'll fall pissed out of the door. Tomorrow is another day to get up in the bikes. If we get it wrong tomorrow, we may take a bloody hike. And how about this to follow Jerry? The last rose of summer, sung in Japanese. And that was Tomoko Toshia, a journalist over with the Japanese team, and she apparently picked up the words of that song from her grandmother. 
Well, lest we forget, the race was won by 22-year-old Tommy Evans of the Derry Clark Brothers team. And it's only fitting that the last word should go to the most important people on the Ross, the cyclists themselves. It's not a race like anywhere in Europe anymore. It's nine days, open racing, 100 miles a day every day. <laughs> May wouldn't be May without their ass. <laughs> It's just such a great atmosphere, the racing is such a good quality um, and also I like battering myself to death, I think. Thrilled, yeah, fi finally I'm after, after winning the stage. I was starting to get a bit frustrated and getting seconds and thirds, but finally today I've managed to, managed to pick off the stage. It was a real rust day, yeah, without a doubt. The rain made it quite hard and it was heavy roads all day. I don't think anyone would have really had an easy day today because of the conditions. Oh, Glen Gesh was unbelievable. I thought everybody had told me the Memor Gap was the hardest, but that Glen Gash I nearly passed out when I seen it, just the steepness of it and seeing it going up and up. Well, we were warned it was very steep at the top, but um, as it turned out, it, it was steep all the way up. I mean, I was straight into bottom sprocket. Derry team is certainly very strong anyway. Um, there's easily two, three guys in the team that can, that can win this race. There's many mounts yet um, when the Ross come in the goal before. The man that's leaves, then he goes with, with, with the jersey, and the man that's leaves, he away to Dublin. I'm delighted to get a stage win, you know, it's been, it's been a very rough week for me, and, um, you know, things didn't work out early on in the week. Starters come around during the middle, and, you know, got up this morning, I said, well, you know, there's one more stage left, I'm going to have to do something. But the young man's on further on the field. Uh, very satisfied. <laughs> it's the best day of my life so far. The superb backup from the teammates, Barry Monaghan, Paul Giles, and uh, Dennis Easton, and even David McCann. 